Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Oh, hello, and welcome to the show. Appreciate you joining us today. My guest is Alex Rogers. He's the principal of Gray Duck Capital. He studied economics and finance at the University of Minnesota, Duluth, along with longtime business partner Frank Rush. Alex began building a portfolio of real estate assets in the northern Minnesota market and soon expanded into multifamily. He is uh, received his master of science degree in real estate and the build environment from the University of Denver. He is a CCIM, a certified commercial investment member, an Argus Enterprise certified professional. He's also ex has experience as an adjunct professor at the University of Denver School of Business, where he taught graduate students real estate financial analysis and has been published in the Colorado Real Estate Journal and Minnesota Real Estate Journal. So that's the professional bio there. Uh, Alex and I had a great conversation, very candid about how they built their business over time, starting in 2009 with some creative financing on single family stuff. And so getting owner financing and stuff like that when the world was kind of falling apart after the global financial crisis, all the way through building a construction company, building a management company, getting into multiple markets on a lot of older assets there in the Midwest. And so we talk about a lot of mom and pop uh, owner long multi-decade owners that they would come in and buy assets. So pretty cool story about how they're able to come in and add value there. So we get into the details on the team, um, lifestyle structure, what they're doing for their capital stack, their debt and their equity. And they've done a lot of deals on their own and just recently started syndicating and raising capital. Um, advice for newbies or new investors, what's going on in the current market. So all the kind of stuff that we like talking shop about in real estate. Great conversation with Alex. I think you're going to enjoy it. Before we jump into that, um, thank you for jumping on the podcast. I appreciate it. If you are inclined, a five-star review is the biggest impact you could have and would be the biggest thank you to me. That helps the reach of our show if you give us a five-star review on Apple. And uh, that would be helpful. So we're going to have a message from our sponsors and we'll dive into the show. Let's go. This episode is brought to you by DJE Texas Management Group, a San Antonio, Texas-based real estate investment firm with a track record of transacting on several hundred million dollars of multifamily land and industrial deals throughout Texas. DJE has been in business for over a decade and is approaching 100 team members in San Antonio. To learn more about DJE, visit djetexas.com or the link in the show notes of this episode. This episode is also brought to you by apartmenteducators.com, a complete ecosystem for professionals to learn how to find, finance, and operate large multifamily properties for profit. You can get started with a free mini course and learn more at apartmenteducators.com or visit the link in the notes. Alex, hey, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? My pleasure. I'm doing well. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, awesome. Good to connect and look forward to talking shop on some real estate stuff here. For those folks listening that uh, aren't already in your world, how about uh, how about some background? You know, what, what's your background? What's your story? And, and how'd you get into this game? Sure, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, yeah, so we started investing in real estate in 2009, graduated from undergraduate in 2009 right in the heat of like the global recession. 
markets started crashing around us, didn't feel like jumping into the corporate world. So my business partner, my business partner and I right out of college kind of uh, pulled together all the funds we could and started investing in relatively small assets in the tertiary market, Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, acquired a couple single families through creative financing, um, and it slowly snowballed from there. In 2014, we opened up a uh, residential property management company, opened a construction firm shortly after, and then our asset management company and investment management company, Great Duck Capital, in 2021, and slowly and intentionally growing uh, from here. Awesome. So you guys are, are truly vertically integrated on the construction and the management piece. Absolutely. What um, what markets, what type of asset classes are you guys doing? Great question. We are primarily focused in the Midwest. It's what we know. We like the very affordable markets of uh, Minneapolis, Twin Cities, uh, Duluth, Minnesota is ba- where we're based out of. It's a very tertiary market, but very stable and strong market. Uh, sure. Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and Kansas City are the kind of areas that we focus in, and we focus in multifamily. Uh, today we start off with smaller single families to, um, you know, duplexes and everything in between, and now I've grown to focus primarily on multifamily. Got it, got it. So um, you guys have built the management company. How did you, how did you approach that? Are you, are you your partner, the the operations person there? Did you bring in an operations person? And then I'm curious too. We built our management company, so we've got you know our our wins and, and challenges there, but we're kind of, we're in one market. So how do you guys do it for multiple markets when you are the, are the management company? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. We, so when we started the management company in 2014, it was yep. based off the feedback that we received from our marketplace, from other colleagues that were just having issues finding good property management. They've been self-managing <laughs> forever and yeah. a tertiary market, you know, there might've been two other management companies in town and they weren't as strong. The housing right. market in our our current market, the tertiary market, Duluth, has much older housing stock, and the number of high density projects are fewer than most other markets. So, right. most multifamily projects really top out at twenty seven units. There's a lot of newer product today, Class A, that's bigger, one hundred fifty to three hundred units. But previous to that, smaller projects, so smaller right. management companies. So we were approached by colleagues in the market asking for help because we've built out systems and have a team to help us manage our own assets at that time um, and kind of slowly grew from there. Uh, our, our, the way we approached the management was really trial and error. My business partner had uh, some experience uh, working with rental properties that his family owned uh, in a smaller capacity. You know, growing up through high school, you mow the lawns and help you know maintain the properties, but really no hands-on experience on what the systems and the processes are like to actually effectively manage that portfolio. So from our first acquisition in 2009 through 2014, the whole time was spent trial and error, building systems, understanding what worked and what didn't work uh, to build the structure that was scalable for us. Um, and from there, it's, you know, with multifamily assets, when you eclipse you know, 85 units in some markets, uh, it becomes very feasible to have on-site management, which, you know, takes away a lot of the hurdles that you see in other markets. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting that some of those older properties are are pretty small, right? In the scheme of things in multifamily, 25, 27 units, yeah. which creates its own, its own opportunities, its own challenges, right? I imagine you guys are buying from like a lot of mom and pop owners on, on stuff that size. That is 100% mom and pop owners, you know, people yeah. that even built the product themselves back in the seventies, oh self-managed wow. it right up until, you know, we acquired them. So 
Uh, wow. that, that is our primary target. Yeah. So my experience on stuff like that has been that a lot of times there's, they kind of been business as usual, maybe for decades. Uh, is there, are you guys doing and doing like going in and doing like gut rehabs and bringing these things, you know, three, $400 up to market rent or are some of them pretty clean? Uh, some are pretty clean. Gut rehabs are a bit aggressive. So the product that we, uh, the last two projects that we've, we've closed on have been 1970s products. So uh, didn't necessarily need a gut, but we're, you know, replacing cabinets, uh, appliances, fixtures, trims, uh, modernizing the property. Uh, you know, right. they, they also lack kind of the classic class A amenities, uh, which is just fine for the markets that we're in. So yeah, that's uh, not right. necessarily gut rehabs, but pretty strong, uh, you know, value add plays that are pretty consistent with what we see elsewhere. What are you guys seeing on kind of a rent delta? between you know a classic unit when you go in versus a, a renovated uh a renovated product that you guys are bringing out a lot of times it's gonna be pretty substantial uh yeah. depending on the previous operator sure. i know a lot of mom and pops typically value uh less vacancy and less turnover over maybe their profitability now they maybe yeah. didn't have that on the project beforehand yeah. So they don't necessarily care about pushing rents or where market rents lie. So the delta that we you know typically see is very strong. You know the renovations themselves can you know maybe bump it up a half an a half of asset class where you can get maybe three hundred bucks more a month. But the natural uh, delta between its current rent versus market rents can be twice that. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. a huge huge difference. Huge difference. So you've, if I, if I'm understand correctly, finished college and jump right into this game. Never had a, never had a W two job. Oh, I, I mean, I've been working since middle school. Uh, had no sure. W two sure. jobs all the way through high school. I wouldn't say like a career job. I wasn't a entry level analyst at a, gotcha. at a yeah, you know, yeah. CPA firm or anything. So really jumped in. Really have entrepreneurship kind of running through my blood. My father's an yeah. entrepreneur. Um, my brother's an entrepreneur, so uh, really enjoy uh, working for my own successes, where my success is completely derived on by my efforts. Hundred percent, and that's why that's really the real reason I have this podcast. I want to kind of talk with like-minded folks. Uh, uh, I'm the same way, and a lot of us that choose to run these small real estate private equity companies uh, are, are that. So <clears throat> part of it for me is just kind of hanging out and getting to know, you know, other people that are, that are in the same boat. So what is your, you know, what does your lifestyle look like? Are you intentional about that? Is it just, you know, do you enjoy working a lot? And that's something I kind of struggle with myself is like, I find myself working quite a bit, but, but it's because of what you said that your efforts are kind of directly correlated. Whereas maybe in a bigger organization an employee, they're not. And um, so your efforts directly correlated to your success. So I find myself working a lot, despite the fact that, okay, I've got the freedom autonomy, kind of do whatever. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times my choice in the menu of what am I doing this week is, man, I want to work, I want to go build something. How do you, how do you approach that given that you kind of have ultimate freedom to do whatever? Yeah. I mean, work-life balance is kind of like a, a topic, a, uh, a thing that I struggle with as well. And I don't think it's work-life balance isn't a term that really resonates. It is the, yeah. the time I put into our businesses, working with our teams is a component of our lifestyle. Yeah, uh, I, I do find myself working a lot and it was definitely a transition for my wife, especially where she knew from day one, when we started dating that, you know, as an entrepreneur running these businesses, it occupies a lot of time, but until you're actually kind of part of that ecosystem, you don't truly understand 
how much time that actually is. It's not like, oh, a 45 hour week. That That is a very light week. That's like if I'm on vacation for three days, um, <laughs> right. you know, that is, yeah, that's, that is light. So um, it's something that I struggle with as well. But I think the most important thing for our team so far is building a team that you rely on, a leadership team yes. that you have trust in. So you can leverage their efforts just as much as your own. Um, but that is in and of itself, a whole nother topic that is, you know, skewed with its own challenges and, and uh, other items that you have to be really, really intentional with as well. 100%. I was talking with one of my business coaches and, uh, you know, trying to go through this transition of, of me being the coach for the team and stop setting my foot on the, on the basketball court and being the player. I was the player for a while. And so transitioning fully to that coach hat and owner hat, right. Is yeah. like you said, it's a, it's a new thing and it's really the only way to go if you're going to scale a company up, but it's a completely different skill set to trying to transition that vision that as a solopreneur or small owner, you can execute your vision instantly and immediately, and then trying to execute through other people as this whole other, whole other ball of wax there. Where do you spend most of your week? I mean, is it, it is it mostly, you know, leading coaching systems? Is it lots of different things? Are, are there still like day-to-day -day activities that you're involved in or at this, in this cycle of your company, what, you know, what do you work on in a given week? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I'm, I'm definitely still pretty involved in operational capacities, uh, yeah. very involved in the mentorship of our team. Yeah. Um, I, we're really, uh, we resonate a lot with younger individuals that have the drive and passion to want to learn and get their foot in the door. And it's our objective to provide them opportunity and be able to give them the education to grow within our firm. So a lot of operational uh, components are still in the day-to-day, -day, but also mentoring and developing this young team of people behind us uh, to grow into our organization, to help with leadership roles. Um, it, that That's where I do try to intentionally put a lot of my own efforts in the education components for those that will eventually be running this organization for us. Yeah. Yeah. I think that yeah. makes perfect sense. What are you guys doing for, <clears throat> you know, these the real estate deals pretty capital intensive, right? So you're taking on some form of debt for the, for the deals. You're taking on some form of equity. Usually, I mean, maybe some of these mom and pop owners didn't have any debt and, or any equity, but guys like you and me are probably doing a little bit different. How are you, you know, how are you approaching your, your debt or loans and how are you guys approaching equity on these projects? So up until uh, last year, we never really raised equity, uh, raised capital yeah. to fund our deals. It's nice. all just been uh, inside capital. Um, yep. And our debt structures, you know, starting day one, we realized like the biggest risk to our deals is how the financing is structured. So yep. we've been very intentional with that from day one. We don't mess with bridge debt. Um, we, we we really avoid those shorter terms. Um, so all the things that we acquire are going to be longer term fixed rate debt to avoid a lot of the challenges that other operators are seeing today with their, uh, their rate caps no that are adjusting and... Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, we see that as our future opportunity too. Yeah, that's right. Especially right now, we're talking kind of early 2023. There's just been, I mean, if you had a rate cap, everybody's at it. <laughs> so yeah. you're back to fixed rate debt, but it's uh, 200 basis points higher. And that expires in the next month, six months, 18 months. I mean, they're coming. And those repricing will not be fun. So that's where we step in. We'll help, you know, we'll help with that burden and yeah, acquire that piece right. for you. Yeah, the banks. The banks don't want to take those assets over. They want you to come in and and uh, recapitalize those and take those over. So that's 
really cool that you were able to grow the company and and kind of not take on investor capital. Have you kind of dipped your toe in that water? Or are you guys saying, you know what, we're going to go do bigger deals. We're going to syndicate. What's your thought process around that these days? Yeah. So uh, we have syndicated two deals now, um, a 112 unit portfolio in our Duluth, Minnesota market and a 84 uh, unit portfolio in Robbinsdale, Minnesota, a first ring suburb of Minneapolis. Um, and those are both syndications. We understand that everybody likes to fund model two. Uh, we sure. like to give our capital partners um, more insight directly based on the asset itself versus the fund as we're newer to uh, raising capital and uh, don't want to be too salesy about it. So they have all the information. They can look at the asset. They can underwrite it. They can review our underwriting, uh, make a decision if it makes sense. At the same time, we invest a tremendous, a tremendous amount of our own capital in each of these deals too. So it was more of a way to get our yeah, other community partners that have been asking for um, ways to partner with us in on these deals too. Absolutely. Yeah. You provide an opportunity. You guys are in an ideal situation where you've got a track record built on your own steam. And as a LP or a passive investor, I, I don't know that it gets better than that, right? You've got somebody that's got years of experience with an asset class in a market that doesn't need money, which is the, kind of the ideal person to give money to, right? It's like, all right, you've proven the model. Now you're going, doing something similar, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, much easier, I think, for a, a limited partner to make that decision to invest with that sort of scenario than it's my first time out, I'm doing a hundred doors, you know, it, it's just the track record is, ir it, it, it's proof of work, right? It's it's irreplaceable. It takes years to build some of this stuff up. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, you guys are in a good spot to to be able to start kind of responsibly expanding to OPM and growing the business. That's our objective, but in a very, very intentional way. You know, yeah. like everybody today in 2023, uh, the, the, the tailwind is no longer there. We're now facing different, you know, headwinds right. in certain areas. So, um, capitalization, liquidity is really important to us, making sure those debt structures are ideal. Um, interest rate environment has been very volatile and increasing, obviously, in the last six, nine months. So all those considerations have been challenging for us to find deals that meet our criteria, and we're not willing right. to move from what that criteria is. Yeah, that's right. We are in an interesting spot where you have sellers that aren't willing to move off their 21, 2021 <laughs> BOVs either, right? Yeah. Um, until they have to, and there's going to be some have tos. I, I'm not seeing a lot of it yet, but are you guys seeing some of this stuff where it's like seller wants X, but they got a loan maturity in three months and they, they got to liquidate. Yeah. We, um, so previously we'd work with, you know, mom and pops to acquire different uh, um, projects, different deals. Uh, we have great broker relationships too. However, everything that we're sure. seeing today is, you know, pricing guidance that's you know, in effect for January 1st of 2022 or late 2021, right. that just don't make sense today. And unfortunately, you know, yeah. the operators that have to make those those values to actually get their returns to their investors that they promised, but um, we're just not seeing uh, seller expectations meet reality for today. Yeah, huge disconnect. And I guess as long as you can hang on as an owner, you do. Uh, at some point, there'll be some forced sales. Who knows? You know, unless the unless the Fed rides in here sooner than later and kind of rescues everybody, which is anybody's guess, uh, there's going to be some forced sales at some point. So, which will be interesting because 
There's also a lot of good operators that are that are ready to rock on that. You know, they got capital ready, they've got investment investors ready if they're syndicating, and they've got good operations. And it, you know, there's going to be a lot of us in that situation to pounce on who knows how many distressed deals. So it, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, there's you mentioned there's always headwinds in this business. There's always some kind of tailwind, and the trick is that they're always changing, right? Yeah. Um, one of the things we we're talking about with the team though is fundamentally we're in San Antonio the supply demand dynamics have not changed. I mean, we've still got this influx of supply of, of, of demand coming in the supply for, you know, we do mid eighties, large multifamily. You that's irreplaceable. You can't recreate that stuff. Um, so the, the supply demand dynamics haven't changed, even though the finance dynamics have changed drastically. You know, we think over some sort of near term, your supply d- demand dynamics kind of keep you keep the business viable. Right. Absolutely. I, I think that macro trend is seen everywhere throughout the U.S. And that's going to keep the multifamily market very, very uh, you know, sustainable in terms of valuations. There might be some micro markets that see some challenges in terms of their valuations. And that's just due to maybe oversupplying that specific micro market. But as a whole, the supply demand imbalance is just too large of a gap to really um, impact this this industry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Along your journey, um, have you guys toyed with the idea of getting into other avenues in real estate? I mean, there's a thousand and one things we could be doing from self-storage to development to land. You know, what's your what's your process on, on kind of how you approach that? So we have a few other um, LP investments that we've we've made ourselves and other operators that we know, like and trust um, from our own. Um, effort standpoint, we've looked into development. Uh, we have a really great site that we're actively working on uh, a phase development project. Um, however, the environment with a the, the capital environment for the uh, the financing structure and our construction costs alone have made it really challenging to make anything feasible. Uh, we work with a number of other developers in the region, and their capital stacks to get these projects projects across the finish line are massive. Um, so. I think from a macro perspective, for our demand supply balance to ever get close to equilibrium, there's going to have to be some really big pressures on how we are able to provide supply and not just class A, you know, luxury or not just affordable, but everything, every asset class, how we provide that to to our market. Because right now it's just not feasible. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I like the approach though of, of uh, getting in an LP position with another operator, and there's some, you know there's some learning that you can do there, along with hopefully hitting or beating your your target returns a sponsor has. But that allows you to participate in some different things with very minimal or no time commitment. So I've I've kind of done that too over the years. Let's throw some LP money at this project. That's a little different than something I do, but I'm going to learn from it, and hopefully it does well. And you know you kind of diversify yourself that way. Exactly. And those are typically in asset classes that we're not, you know, experts or don't feel comfortable in. So self-storage, some assisted living things, um, that's usually typically where we like to diversify our own LP funds. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense. I mean, they're, they're all good and they all have their pros and cons. It's just to go learn assisted living as an organization and pivot is, it's like a whole, it's a whole different undertaking to, despite it all being real estate and kind of similar capital stack and similar concept. There's just so many nuances to each, uh, to each asset class. Exactly. So we do some land deal, like rural land deals, which I've had a lot of fun with over the years, you know, we're in Texas. So 
couldn't be more different. You got a multifamily deal with a property manager and maintenance team. And it's like, it's this thing. And then we're out like hunting on a 500 acre ranch in South Texas that we're trying to sell. And there's oil and gas leases. And there's like totally different set of players. It's still real estate, but it could not be any more different um, in terms of the, the mechanics of the whole thing. So it's kind of interesting to, to do that. So we've diversified a little bit, but you don't want to uh, have have that shiny object syndrome and be chasing too many things. True. But I do love that about real estate. You know, if you talk to anybody, if anybody introduces themselves as, Hey, I'm Alex, I'm in real estate. You know, there's literally a million different niches that they can focus on. Oh, that's yeah. one of the beautiful things about real estate is that you it can really, focus it your is. efforts on a very small niche that not many people maybe, you know, have the expertise in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you guys see? Uh, you know, again, we're talking early 2023. What do you guys see for the year ahead? Do you guys like to, set targets around acquisitions or do you just kind of set, try to look at deals and, and be opportunistic about what you buy? How do you, how do you guys approach that? Yeah, we, we definitely don't set targets or goals saying, Hey, we're going to acquire 400 units, you know, this year. Um, We'll underwrite every deal that makes sense that comes to us. uh, And we will go down that process through the LOI and acquisition process. If it makes sense. Um, Yep. Our goals in terms of the year are to continue to execute the business plans that we already have in place, uh, continue to exceed expectations uh, for our investors for the deals that we have already um, uh, that we've already acquired and uh, they're underway. Those are our goals. Yeah, I love it. Operate the deals that that you do. Yeah, it can be dangerous setting targets, and then you know depends what the market hands you. Yeah, uh, especially kind of since last summer of 2022 with the debt market shakeup, it's like well. We'd love to be doing deals, but um, it's been really kind of pencils down and quiet. I mean, brokers are playing golf and, you know, <laughs> I, I, one, of, one of somebody on the team said they talked to a broker. He was, said he was considering, this is like a very successful broker of huge deals was saying he's considering uh, driving for Uber. And I think he was joking, but I also know that he's not, they're not busy at all. So it's hard. I mean, we there's no shortage of uh, deals on the market in terms of deals that are brokered. Um, right. And a lot of these deals are getting across the finish line from some buyer. I, somebody. Uh, yeah. From somebody, I just don't know who. Um, so, I mean, we're still seeing transactions, but they're just not meeting our criteria. And I'm assuming um, that might be some young money that's coming in that, you know, we might see the deal back on the market in the near term. Yeah. Yeah, definitely could be. What do you guys, now that you're raising capital, um, how do you structure a deal? Is this like a five-year hold? Are you guys super long-term? Is, do you have a waterfall structure? How, how do you guys set all that up? Yeah, our, so our general outlook with the deals that we acquire are not, you know, we don't say, yeah, we're going to acquire this, renovate it, and turn it in three years. So we definitely uh, right. opt for longer-term holds. Sure. Um, underwrite to a minimum of five years usually. Um, yeah. For other deals, it's almost a, a, we had a really unique deal in 2021 where we have an opportunity to dispose of other partial assets within the portfolio, return all investor capital, and then kind of have an infinite return. Um, so no two deals are alike. Um, we, we try to avoid complex waterfalls if we're able to. Um, so usually it's just a pretty basic split. Yeah, we do the same thing. And I think it's just easier. You know, if you can't explain it and 30 seconds on a napkin over coffee, you start to see people's eyes glaze, glaze over with, I mean, you've seen, you've seen the deals of like five hurdles and splits and it just gets massively complicated. And I don't want to calculate that or have my team do it. 
you could leave money on the table as a sponsor, but there's something to be said for the simplicity of just kind of having the same simple split out there. True. And we don't necessarily work with a ton of retail unsophisticated investors. Um, sure. Um, by definition, we have to work with sophisticated investors, but a lot of retail investors we don't uh, we don't work with. So most of the people that actually do end up investing with us, this is not their first investment. It's not their first rodeo. They understand how these things work, and I'm sure have invested with numerous other people with very complex uh, fee structures. Structures, yeah. 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 At some point, you become kind of a professional LP or passive investor, and once yeah. you've seen a hundred decks go out on commercial multifamily or commercial real estate, you're um, starts to kind of all look the same. So now that, you know, you had been in the business since 2009, uh, done all kinds of different things, had had some successes growing the company. What do you say to somebody that's in your shoes, you know, when you were starting, or what do you say to yourself when you were first starting, given the vantage point and experience and perspective that you, that you now have? Yeah. So when we started out, uh, attaining capital was somewhat challenging. The debt markets were not super, um, uh, willing to work with younger, newer investors in the market. So our first couple of deals we had to get across the finish line were very creative forms of financing. And I think that can go a long way today with anybody trying to get in the market. I think- Can you, can you dive in on that a little bit more? Is this owner finance or partial owner finance or what, what, it, what was that exactly? Exactly. Owner finance and some seller carry um, yeah. to which we eventually were able to refinance and get longer term debt on. But um, you know, in 2009, I think we- probably looked at for our very first deal as a portfolio of two single family homes, nothing thrilling, not a huge apartment community, but we probably looked at numerous different um, uh, you know, potential projects and made tons of offers, but none of them were willing to work with us in that regard. So um, at that point in time, it was also a numbers game similar to our underwriting and LOI process today, where eventually we found the right seller they had the right uh, motivations to make the deal work with us. We had the right uh, owner carry, uh, owner financing terms on that deal, and we're able to make it work. Uh, today, you know, with the debt markets and with some of the other challenges we might see where some lenders are starting to become unfriendly towards newer faces, you might need the same type of tenacity to get your first deal done. Um, the other trend that we're seeing is just a huge uh, wave of new investors that are now trying to become the GP or the leader of these multifamily deals, um, which, you know, I, I don't know how well that's going to work on the long term. I think there's a lot of new faces, uh, uh, hopefully it works out for everybody. But if you don't have that background and understand how these things actually operate, not just underwrite and asset management, how the actual management of these different larger value add or distress deals actually operate, you're going to be in a lot of trouble because your expectations will not be met. Um, so, Newer investors, focus on what you know, what you can kind of get your hands there and understand the industry really from uh, not just the macro level where the numbers play out, but actually how it operates uh, is what we what we kind of uh, discuss with everybody that we're working with mentoring. Yeah, I love it. Great advice from somebody that's been in the game a while. So Alex, I appreciate that. Listen, it's great to meet you. Great to catch up. I appreciate you sharing your story. If somebody listening to this now wants to learn more about your company, how can they do that? Yeah, you can reach us. You can find us on grayduckcapital.com, G-R-A-Y-D-U-C-K, uh, capital C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes. If you're listening, you can scroll to the description and click right through to Gray Duck Capital and visit Alex's site and their team and do all that stuff. So I encourage you to check that out. 
Um, Alex, thanks very much, man. I wish you guys success with the operations and maybe some potential acquisitions here in the, in the year ahead, but, uh, thanks for jumping on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. See you. See you later. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.